Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun. On three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, thank you so much for joining the show. Pleasure is all ours. No problem. <laughs> so just as a, a, an initial question, can you tell listeners and viewers what the function of the European Parliament is? How much time have you got? <laughs> Jeez, you started with a really hard one there, and now we're going to go, oh my God, how are we going to answer oh, this? Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, what's the function of the European Parliament? That's a or hard... like, just for people who don't know what it, yeah, just in general for people who don't, you know, people are kind of uh, familiar with members of Parliament by a country but I don't think that they know necessarily what the European Parliament is. Well, they're in good company because most of the people of Europe don't know what that is either. Um, I suppose the European Parliament is the only directly elected body of the European Union institutions. It's ruled kind of by a tripartite system. You have the European Commission, which are nominees from each of the member states, their appointees, with a big civil service behind them. They're the power brokers. Then you have the council. They are the countries. Uh, they're also powerful. And then of the parliament which is the only directly elected ones we can't initiate legislation but we are a co-legislator so we can block some legislation so uh yeah it's a bit weird it's not really like any other parliament anywhere else you know but well, we were directly <coughs> elected from ireland we are two of ireland's 13 uh, members there's 700 meps overall from the 27 member states yeah so as opposed to national parliaments uh every five years there's uh direct elections to the European Parliament uh, in each of the member states. Uh, when we stood first in 2019, Ireland had 11 members, but that became 13 when the Brits pulled out with Brexit because all the seats that um, Britain gave up uh, were distributed uh, out according to um, any recent increases in population or not. Uh, so Ireland's uh, quota became 13. So we were... Uh, two of the 11 originally. Uh, so, um, generally speaking, uh, people kind of think of um, Parliament as the kind of running a country, but um, do the European Parliament run Europe? Well, that's debatable because a lot of the power remains with the member state. Uh, the European Union, uh, we would say, is gradually getting, uh, garnering more and more of the power for itself, is looking to centralise authority more. And uh, without getting complicated about it, uh, we had um, we 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 signed a treaty in uh, called the Lisbon Treaty and uh, a treaty called the Nice Treaty. In the last twenty years, uh, we opposed both of them, and in Ireland. Uh, the Irish people had a vote on both treaties and they voted against both of them. But uh, the Europeans didn't like the results, so they made us vote again. And uh, so apart from threats and, uh, and carrots and sweets, uh, they, uh, they presented a different scenario each time. 
and the uh, the vote was successful from a European perspective, uh, second time round each time. But those two treaties uh, would very much have enshrined right wing neoliberalism uh, at the heart of uh, European Union law. Uh, so. Uh, Fixing the European Union, making it a body that represents its citizens uh, more so than it represents the interests of big business, would actually require reversing those treaties. So it's a big task. Mm. And um, one of the things that you recently spoke out against was the, I guess, the resolution to declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. How did that vote go and why did you speak out against it? Well, I suppose for us, it's indicative of the fact that the European Parliament <laughs> to us is becoming increasingly extremist in its views, even beyond what the EU governments would be, the Parliament is in some ways worse. So there is nothing in EU law to recognise the concept state sponsor of terrorism. It obviously exists in EU law, it doesn't exist, or in US law, it doesn't exist in EU law, but the Parliament still passed this. Now, there were 17% of the members didn't support the resolution, so maybe 50-something of us voted against, 40-something abstained. That actually is a big move forward because on the original move on the on the Russian war, it was about 13% of us voted against the resolution. So, I mean, the reasons why we voted against it was, A, it was meaningless. It's about the equivalent of name-calling. But we actually had MEPs getting up afterwards, members of Parliament getting up and bragging that after the vote, that uh, Russia had attacked Ukraine, and this was a kind of a result. I mean, these people are mental, and uh, that there had been a sort of a mini cyber attack on the parliament. And this proves that we had an impact. Now, apart from being mar narcissistic in total, I mean, the cyber hack could have been done by a bunch of vigilantes in their bedroom. It wasn't sophisticated. It was claimed afterwards by a sort of a Russian nationalist, pro-Kremlin sort of bedroom boy league it wasn't necessarily linked to the state or anything um, but yeah I mean this is lunacy if, if Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism well then so is the US so is Israel it's meaningless you know yeah uh, we, we pointed out to them that uh, you're, you're going to have to um, anyone that goes to war you're going to have to call them uh, state sponsors of terrorism then and, and to a point uh, anyone that engages in war uh, does engage in a form of terrorism because uh, we made the point that uh, if the Russians are dropping bombs on uh, residential areas in Ukraine, uh, then uh, are they terrorising the people in the apartments? Absolutely they are. If, 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 you're in a, if you're in an apartment block and there's bombs being dropped, and even if you're not being targeted, if they're dropping close to you, well, you, you'd be fairly terrorised that they might drop on you. And uh, so... Uh, war involves terrorising people, especially if you use aerial bombing uh, in particular. And uh, and as we as we've pointed out, uh, most of the wars that we've known in our lifetime have been started by US or NATO countries. Uh, so they've been terrorising the living daylights of an awful lot of people. I mean, when the Americans killed uh, over a million citizens in Iraq. Uh, it was very strange the European Parliament didn't want to call them terrorists uh, or uh, state sponsors of terrorism, given that they were, certainly were terrorising the living daylights out of uh, the people of Iraq, as they've done in uh, Afghanistan, as they did in Libya, as they did in Belgrade back in the 90s, as they've done in, in Syria by arming the jihadists. I mean, where does it stop? And God knows the Israelis are still terrorising uh, the Palestinians every goddamn day.
Well, it's mad that the Biden administration didn't even, you know, where you could do it in the US, actually pass this, chose not to because it would be an impediment to peace later on. Obviously, the US doesn't want peace now, but at a certain stage, they will. And it's just indicative of how extreme the European Parliament has become, that actually they're quite open about the fact that they don't want peace. They're quite happy to have working class young people from Ukraine basically be a meat grinder in a, a war or a revenge against Russia, thinking we're going to beat those Ruskies. Like, it's just absolutely appalling stuff, really is. Yeah, I mean, uh, p listeners, your listeners might be a bit shocked to hear that uh, myself and Claire put in an amendment at the plenary in October uh, onto the Russian resolution, and our amendments called on the EU to explore all opportunities to, to find peace uh, and to begin dialogue and diplomacy in order to an end to the war. And of the MEPs who voted, 436 voted against that amendment. In other words, they wanted the war to continue. 118 voted for it. The rest either abstained or, uh, or weren't present. So what it meant was that close to 80% of the MEPs that, vo that voted on the issue uh, were voting for war rather, and were opposing peace. Now, uh, that's in stark contrast uh, to the research that's been done across Europe. Uh, and, and there was a European body called the European Council for Foreign Relations, uh, which does a lot of uh, research on peace. Or, or they do surveys of the European people. And over 70% of the people of Europe voted for peace rather than continuing to punish Russia as the alternative. So you have over 70% of the people, that was back in June, over 70% of the people wanting peace and you have over 80% of the politicians wanting war. I mean, how well do the politicians represent the citizens? Not too well, I'm afraid. So you guys have surpassed in some ways the belligerence of the United States. So congratulations on that, since Biden himself doesn't want to uh, label Russia a terrorist state. Maybe we've inspired you. Are you, uh, our government has inspired your governments, I mean, but are you surprised that that Europe is in some ways? Um, I, I actually just I interviewed Jeff Sachs, the economist Jeff Sachs, and he was saying that he's not surprised that America, the United States, is being belligerent <coughs> and oppo and opposing peace. But he's a little bit surprised that um, that Europe is being that way. Yeah, I mean, look, at I think we all are since the beginning of the war. And I think people all around the world are kind of scratching their heads and saying, my God, Europe has shot itself in both feet. Um, it's one of the biggest losers. Obviously, Ukraine is the biggest loser. Uh, Russia's not exactly winning either. But Europe after that is really suffering badly, primarily economically. Uh, we've obviously been in receipt of millions. I think it's about seven million refugees now from Ukraine who are all given status uh, as a European citizen, they can come in, get social welfare, whatever, you know, access benefits and so on. And that's as it should be. We believe that should be for any asylum seeker. But unfortunately, it isn't. It's only if you're from Ukraine. But that's a, a different story. But then the energy crisis and the cost of living crisis on Europe means absolutely that companies are shutting down. Jobs are going to be lost. There's the emergence of tension now with the US in light of the fact that European dependency on Russian gas has been replaced placed by uh, contracts with LNG uh, from all over the world. And of course, the revelation that we're paying four times as much as you're paying for the same LNG, which has caused a bit of tension between the Atlantic partners. Not too happy with that one. Penny beginning to drop, but yeah, it's been 
economic sabotage, really, and they've willingly kind of gone along with it. Well, the, the first time the Europeans actually objected to it was uh, when Biden introduced the Inflation Reduction Act, because this was a real wake-up call for the Europeans. And uh, you, we had the likes of uh, the High Representative Joseph Burrell coming out and saying, oh, America, you're imposing measures that uh, are hurting us economically. Now, I, I'm kind of wondering what planet he was living on before now, because the Americans have always done whatever they feel like doing anyway. And But uh, this combined with the fact that it's become... Uh, an open secret that uh, we're buying LNG gas from America. They're charging us four times more than they're charging their own business. Uh, and these people all think in business terms more than citizens' terms, right? So wh what they're looking at is you've, you've a, you have a company, for example, uh, in the US, uh, let's say they're making cars, and you have the same company trying to make the same car uh, in Europe. But the guys in Europe had to pay four times more for energy than the guys in America. Well, what chance have the Europeans got of competing with them? And this is all uh, as part of the effort uh, to punish Russia. We've introduced sanctions against Russian gas and oil at a great cost to ourselves. And we're going to pay an awful lot more for it to the Americans. And aside from that, it's a huge rollback on our environmental ambition because LNG is frack gas. It comes from frack gas and it's filthy. It's the dirtiest gas that ever came out of the ground. And we are promoting the excavation and exploration of more LNG in the US and other places. Uh, we're obviously going to buy it off those lovely people in Qatar as well. Uh, but uh, we're forgetting about our environmental ambition. We're going to park some of it in order to punish Russia. And, uh, <clears throat> and at the same time, we're going to enrich America. So America don't know its luck. They're getting uh, gr great money for their LNG. They're going to expand their exports. They're building extra terminals uh, at the moment in the Gulf of Mexico. And their, uh, their arms industry, which helps to put your president in power every four years, uh, are, it's bonanza days, happy days. Uh, things were never better. Mm. And for people who um, don't live in Europe, I think people don't really have a sense, well, I should say people in the United States, because I think if you're someone who lives in Libya, you do have a sense. But Americans, I don't think, understand uh, what NATO is like, and they think of it as a kind of diplomatic, almost, core, uh, as opposed to a quite belligerent one. So what is the, how do people in Europe see uh, NATO? And can you discuss uh, a little bit of the, the legacy uh, of NATO? I suppose it depends where you are in Europe would be one of it or who you talk to. I mean, there would be quite a well-developed understanding of NATO as a sort of a, a war machine in certain parts, like there's been some big anti-war, anti-NATO protests in the likes of France and Italy and so on. But in Eastern Europe, it's always been presented as a sort of a bulwark against the, well, former Soviet Union and now uh, Russia in the main. And unfortunately, the leadership in a lot of the... Um, 
uh, Baltic states and Poland in particular are particularly conservative, particularly Russophobic and particularly war-hungry, to be honest. Their obsession is in annihilating Russia rather than serving the interests of their own people or trying to live peacefully on the one continent. So I think there is a greater understanding in maybe Western Europe than in Eastern Europe, like the rapid acceleration of EU membership taking in a lot of those Eastern European countries all those years ago after the collapse of the Soviet Union. One of the key reasons, apart from getting a pool of cheap labour for Western Europe, was to develop NATO. So they're kind of in that camp, you know. Uh, obviously, NATO's legacy, nobody could point to anything good that NATO has done anywhere. What we talk a lot about here is Libya, because the consequences of the NATO destruction of Libya are felt in every single part of European policy, because Libya used to be a kind of a bulwark of regional stability, really. In North Africa, the Libyans were one of the wealthiest uh, African countries, the oil revenue there. I'm not saying they treated the migrant population brilliant or that Colonel Gaddafi was a hero, but they got a better cut of the country's resources uh, than many other uh, nations in Africa. And he developed a certain independence there. But of course, at a certain stage, he fell out with the US and they went in and basically took him out through the auspices of NATO. And it's only really recently that we looked at the footage of Hillary Clinton crowing about that. And it's one of the most sickest, disturbing footages that we've seen. I mean, the Gaddafi was hunted down. He was sodomized publicly with a bayonet shot in the head and left there in the streets. And she basically crowed about that. We saw, we came, he died. And the, the interviewer goes, oh, that wouldn't have anything to do with your visit. And she goes, ha, 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 ha. Oh, oh, I'm not saying. But it was just shocking. And obviously that country is in bits now. It's not even a country. It's hardly functioning. And it's now uh, the thoroughfare for mass instability all across the Sahel. And that's a, that's your um, NATO. It's, you know, slave markets, rape, torture, everything. Well, I, um, NATO was formed, I think, in 1949. Um, it, it was formed very much... Uh, it was formed by the Americans in order to keep the Europeans in tow. It was to go. It was to make sure that the Europeans were on page for uh, U.S. imperialism, uh, not objecting to what the Americans were doing. Uh, we're all on the same side, so it was used as a tool by the Americans uh, to keep the Europeans subservient uh, in that area. And up until '91, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, some people did. In Europe, a lot of people actually saw NATO as a defence alliance against a possible uh, bad Russia. And they would argue that, oh, we had no war with Russia during the Cold War because we had NATO. So, but if NATO was just this defence uh, against uh, a possible uh, badly behaved Russia or badly behaved Soviet Union. The argument kind of died in 91 and NATO should have been dissolved then. But we've seen a very different NATO since then because they've become very expansive. I mean, uh, 
not only did they uh, destabilise the whole East European region and close to Russia's borders by moving eastwards, and which led to the uh, present-day instability, but they've become very aggressive. Uh, they played a very warmongering role in Afghanistan, they did it in Bel Belgrade, they did it in Libya, they did it in Iraq. Uh, they're now actually looking at playing a role uh, in uh, the Asian Pacific and uh, to counter China. Now, I mean, this is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, right? Now, what in God's name are they doing uh, anywhere close to China? I mean, the truth be told, NATO is a war machine. It promotes the military-industrial complex, and it supports U.S. imperialism, it supports U.S. empire, and that's its raison d'etre. It has nothing good to offer the citizens of Europe. We want peace, we don't want war, and we don't want NATO. We'd love to see it abolished. Mm. And so what's motivating those in the United States, or I should say, I guess, the U.S. government and European governments to not pursue peace? Well, I suppose we, we see here, and we've no reason to think that the US is any different, that the European Union is totally captured by lobbyists, and one of the biggest lobbyists are the military-industrial complex, and it's their uh, agenda that's been fueled by this, really. There, there is no other beneficiary in town on this. I mean, the cause of peace is so patently obvious for ordinary people. It's so common sense that we shouldn't really be having a discussion about it at all, uh, and that includes everybody in society, but the, the big winners are the, the arms industry and the lobbyists controlled Brussels and I presume they control Washington as well. I mean, your presidents get elected off their payroll and then when they come to power, they have to return the favour. And obviously, as you'd know, uh, most of the money that has been you know, earmarked for Ukraine uh, in military aid never leaves the states like it goes to all the US arms companies that begin with. So I think that's what's talking uh, against <coughs> the backdrop of this. It's also it's incredibly sad that uh, the pro-war people in America and the pro-war people in Europe, main, mainly the politicians backed up by a, a complicit mainstream media, are promoting a war where only poor people, poor Ukrainians and poor Russians are dying, mostly Ukrainians. And von der Leyen made an awful mistake last week because she actually said that there was over 100,000 Ukrainians dead. Now, she had to edit the video <clears throat> because the Ukrainians uh, are, are in denial and they said a maximum of 13,000 have been killed, which is obviously uh, a pretty conservative figure. But whatever the figure is, uh, the rich people from Ukraine are not dying in the war. They're poor people. Only poor people die in war. Rich people don't die in war. War is stupid. War is always stupid. And uh, the less privileged die in the wars. There's less pri privileged uh, Russian soldiers dying too. And uh, we, we've said all along that uh, we don't approve of this war. We don't approve of any war. We're anti-war. We're pro-peace. We think uh, Putin was 100% wrong to invade. He, he was provoked, but he still shouldn't have invaded. And uh, he was wrong to invade. It's a breach of the UN Charter, which we still think uh, merits respect. And uh, he breached that by invading Ukraine. Ukraine. He, he, he disrespected the sovereignty of a nation. We give out about the Americans doing it every day of the week uh, for the last 70 years. So we have to give out about the Russians doing it too. And what's the solution, do you think? If he was provoked, let's say, what do you think some of the, um, the what kind of diplomacy do you think could happen? 
Well, I mean, he should have held out at that time. I and mean, we didn't think that he had no alternative. Even a week before the invasion, Schulz, the German prime minister, was on record as saying that you can't have peace in Europe against Russia. You can only have peace with Russia. And yet a week later, after the invasion, they became the biggest um, sort of supporters of the war with the commitment given to increase military expenditure by on you know unheard of uh, levels and so on so i think france and germany at that stage europe was divided france and germany in particular were feeling the pressure um i think if he had held out a bit more and there was evidence as well that some of the uh, allegations of the mistreatment of people in the donbass by the ukrainian authorities that some of that was coming to light that if he had held out a bit more that would have i suppose come into the public domain a bit more that's been blown now. But the only solution now is to sit down again and talk peace. And for us as Irish people, it's really embarrassing. I mean, we are on, we're in Europe. We're a country that was formerly colonised. We got a seat on the, Europe, on the UN Security Council for a couple of years by basically <laughs> prostituting our neutrality and our history of peacekeeping and going around and marketing that. And people said, oh God, yeah, we let Ireland on the Security Council. We're on it. A war breaks out in Europe and we're the biggest, one of the biggest warmongers sitting around the table where it took Mexico, another country that was also colonised, to raise the idea of peace. And actually a majority of people there in the UN support that call. It's just they're not the US, white, North, Atlantic, North, uh, you know, global North countries are not on that page, but everybody else is. And that's all any war can be resolved is that the international community gets behind people and sort of said, lads, you have to sit down. That's what happened in Ireland. I mean, they go on about Putin being a madman and, oh, you can't talk to him. For God's sake, like there's fellas in Africa and Rwanda and so on, cutting each other's heads off, boiling fellas' heads in pots and they all sat down and sort of resolved things at the end of the day. There's been horrific violence. The idea that people, Putin is mad is just a, a nonsense. The Russians have already agreed a lot of deals in terms of humanitarian aid in terms of grain and so on, of course they would sit down and, and discuss a settlement as well. But the international community or maybe the global north part of it doesn't want to go there yet. They still think there's more to gain out of this war from them. Maybe winter will change that. It's going to be a really difficult winter. It's already getting cold. Um, the refugee crisis is already getting out of hand. Um, yeah, may, maybe that will help change it. I mean, there, there was a three-month period before the war where it looked as if um, that diplomacy and dialogue might come to the fore and that sanity would prevail. Uh, I would say that, that uh, Putin was under pressure from uh, the, the stronger nationalist element uh, in Russia in relation to the Donbass. He was probably, uh, it was probably perceived by them that Putin wasn't do wasn't doing enough to protect uh, the people uh, of a Russian culture in the Donbass region. <clears throat> but yet, at the same time, um, OK, he was looking for a commitment that Ukraine would not be brought into NATO. And it was very foolish of the Europeans uh, not to agree to it. Right? Whatever about the Americans, it was very foolish of the Europeans to say, you're, you're right, in the interest of peace and stability in the region, the idea of Ukraine going into NATO is madness. 
you could have had a scenario where NATO could put, where it would have been able to put missiles on the on, on the on Ukrainian territory that could hit Moscow in four minutes, and they wouldn't have had a facility that could defend against it. So Russia had genuine security concerns, but yet at the same time, uh, was Ukraine going to go into NATO? this year or next year or the year after or any time in the next five years or the next 10 years. I don't think so. And I don't think Putin... Uh, I think if Putin had been stronger, I think he would have refused to invade. But then, mm. on the other foot, uh, we honestly feel as well that if Merkel had still been in power in Germany, there was a less likelihood of war breaking out. Merkel was the one real strong... Uh, member state leader in Germany for the last while. We didn't necessarily like her politics, but she was tough, she was strong, and while she had a good relationship with the Americans, it was never at the expense of Germany. Mm. And Germany came first, and she was prepared to have a, a, a good relationship with the Americans afterwards, right? And there was a lot of pressure on her uh, to end her engagement in Nord Stream 2. But she wasn't for Buckland. She wasn't going to be turned by the Americans. She was going to act in the best interest of Germany. And I honestly think that if she had been the Premier, uh, the Chancellor, uh, in those three months leading up to the war, I think there's a very good chance it wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. But sadly, we've, we're, we're at a juncture where leadership among the member states uh, isn't spectacular. It's, kind of, it's pretty weak. And leadership at European Union level is pathetic. Mm. We have von der Leyen and we have Joseph Borrell as the two main figureheads of our foreign policy. And I'm sorry to say that both of them have left an awful lot to be desired and have not helped matters. Uh, Borrell still thinks the war should be won on the battlefield and uh, von der Leyen has been obnoxious in many of her comments. Uh, she has brought very little rational thinking to the equation and uh, a, a huge, huge disappointment and a very unfortunate time for the people of Europe that to have such weak leadership at European mm -hmm. Union level.